How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Now, here's the real honest part here. Arise, Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. It's amazing what you find in Scripture, isn't it? From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. In the first two verses, David states his problem. And I love David because he doesn't cloud the issue with pious God talk. He didn't cover up his feelings by saying something he didn't feel. He states the problem. How many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver. I sometimes get a little frustrated when people, in trying to state a problem, skirt the issue. They cover it with all sorts of God talk and trying to appease me to make me think that they really trust the Lord. All they have to do is just be honest and spit it out. And sometimes it's frustrating because I like to just be direct and just honest and just, what's the problem? Talk about it. Deal with it. There is, among Christian circles, I believe, a crisis of honesty. And it spills over from our own relationships, I believe, to our communication with God. We feel like we got to convince God that we trust Him and so... We will say things to God that we don't always mean. We'd like to mean, but we don't always mean them. Oh God, I really love you and I really trust you. And sometimes we really don't. And I think our prayers need to be like the man who said, um, I believe, but help my unbelief. There's a part of me that really grabs a hold of the promises you made, but there's a part of me that really doesn't trust you. And that's honesty. And David just said, Lord, I have enemies around me. There are people who are barking at me, saying God will not deliver. He felt alone. You know, it's always easier to face life, any struggle, with other Christians. But when you are all alone, like David felt many times, like Daniel was oftentimes, that's when the rubber meets the road. And David naturally turns to God. You might be wondering what David was going through, and you only have to go up to the explanation of it right under the word Psalm 3. Look at it. It says, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. You remember the story. Absalom usurped the throne. He told people that he was a better king than David was, that if only he could be in charge, they'd be all right. And he succeeded in stealing the kingdom away from David so that David had to flee in the middle of the night across the Kidron Valley with a few dedicated staff members and he had to leave his own throne in his own country. And this is the cry of a broken-hearted father. Even my son has turned against me. My staff members have turned against me. My nation has turned against me. Oh God, I have many enemies. And they're from my own household. And you know, some of you are in David's sandals. You feel that way. You go home to a family, to relatives, who don't share the same convictions about God that you share. 
Your heart cries because you want them to know God, but they don't. And they strike out against you sometimes and make you feel so small and so hurt. And you feel like David crying out, I have enemies, God, in my own household. When I first became a Christian, I came across a scripture that I guess I didn't appreciate, and part of me did appreciate, because it was an honest promise, and I kind of thought that Jesus wouldn't be that honest. He said, don't think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword, and from this day, a man will be divided from his father, and a daughter from her mother. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. I looked at that and I thought, yeah. I mean, I kind of don't like that promise, but it's true. I found that in my own family. When I first became a Christian, I wanted those relationships in my life that were dearest to me to understand what I was going through. And so I explained to them that I had given my life to a new person named Jesus. And they did not understand like I wanted them to understand. In fact, they kind of got angry at me. They told me to quit reading my Bible. Quit going to church. Stop listening to my friends who were influencing me with this propaganda. And my response to them, I thought, was scriptural, but it was not. It was filled with rancor and hate, rejection. Instead of love, I played Junior John the Baptist. I learned how to preach with guilt and condemnation. I stood in the kitchen and I raised my finger at them. And the more they rejected me, the more calloused words I use against them. Judgmental words. With my actions and my attitudes, I just came heavy down on them. And then I wiped my hands thinking, well, I preached the gospel to them. <laughs> Turn or burn. And what I was really doing was rejecting those who had rejected me rather than following a scriptural pattern of bringing it first to God and letting God handle the people who were against me rather than with God talk and pious words trying to come out the good guy and making them feel real small. And you know, the Lord really convicted me that I was being rotten. And I had to stand before my parents and repent. Imagine repenting to an unbeliever. God told me to tell you that I'm wrong and, and I shouldn't have done what I've done. That was tough, but it was the best thing that started healing our relationship that I've ever done. Now, after verse 2, there's a little word. It says, Selah. It wasn't put in there for um, just to put in there. It's put in there for a reason. It's a musical notation. It can mean one of many things. We're not certain, but it could mean, A, this was a pause while the music was playing in the background. Or it was a crescendo to the song. Or there was a key change that was occurring. Whichever it was, we don't know, but whatever it was, it was meant for emphasis. It was put there as if to say, now think about and meditate upon what was just said and get ready for what I'm just about to say. It's a transitional point. In the next couple verses... After speaking about his problem, he talks about the protection God gives him. And he says, but you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud. 
And he answers me from his holy hill. There it is again. Salah. Or think about it. Those verses reveal a pattern of David's. And here's the pattern. Every time David got in over his head, the real tough stuff, he turned it over to God. He had long since realized that when you get into a jam, don't try to fix it yourself. Give it to an expert, one who can handle it. If I go to man, all I will get is advice. And as you know, advice is in more supply than it is in demand. Many will give you advice, but God will give you protection. He instinctively learned to turn his tough things over to God. That is a step I wish I would learn more about. It's a step we all need to learn. I've learned something about Christian counseling. That if some person purports to be a counselor in the name of God, that person had better redirect the counselee back to God, or the counselor isn't worth his salt. Oftentimes a counselor will develop a relationship of dependency upon the counselor to where the counselee feels, I need to get a fix from my counselor. That person's got the, the answers, my therapist. Well, if you are a Christian counselor tonight, you best be leading people back to Jesus and getting them fixed on Him for their problems. And you should only serve as a connector, not as a problem solver. David learned that from an early age. You turn it over to God. And that's a pattern I see all throughout the book of Psalms. No matter what he was going through, yes, he was honest. He poured out his heart to God. He said, break their teeth, crush them. But I trust you. And I'm turning over this big problem over to you. Turn it over to God. A girl came to me one time asking me about her dating relationships. And I said, well, I couldn't give you any advice, really, except the scripture says this, this, and this. She had been married before. She had been divorced. Without going into the details, she said, you know, I'm coming to you today. I've gotten so many different pieces of advice, and I just finally told the Lord that I'm going to go see Skip, and whatever you tell me, that's going to be the Word of God for my life. And this is what it was her question. Can I marry? Is it God's will for me to marry that man? <clears throat> I said, honey, take me off the hook. I will not be put in that situation. You won't peg me like that. I will give you general principles of discerning God's will. And you're on your own. You stand before God. Paul said, before his own master, does a servant rise or fall? And God's able to make that person stand. So here you are. This is what the scripture says. Now you stand before God and find out what he's telling you. Not what he's telling me to tell you. Notice you are a shield around me. You get that word? When is a shield used? In a battle. What a perfect description of the Christian life, a battle. Paul said, endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. Don't think you're exempt from this battle. I don't know where the idea came from, but there are people teaching that Christianity is a bubble rather than a battle. That you get protected from every malady, every problem, every disease. Baloney! 
God will deliver you through the battle, not from it. Otherwise, you don't need a shield. God will be your shield. But you go through the battle. That's where you use it. And God never promised to exempt us from trials. We have the unexplained trials like Amy Carmichael shared all around us. And we need him as a shield. And then he says, you bestow glory on me and you lift up my head. Now you can picture David walking across the Kidron Valley. He had been kicked off of his throne. He lost his glory. His head's hanging low. And God figuratively comes by and lifts up his head and encourages him and bestows glory upon him. This man obviously had a tight relationship with his Lord. God was his encourager, his protection. And in verse 4, notice, to the Lord I cry aloud. I think that's significant. I believe, to some extent, in unspoken prayer requests, but not much. There's probably a place for them, but not often. I think most prayer requests should be verbalized, should be specific. There's something about my prayer life when I verbalize what's going on in my heart and let it bounce across the walls of my brain. I get to hear what I'm praying. And it helps me, it helps me gain perspective. It helps me hear what I'm giving over to God. I cry aloud to the Lord. You know, a lot of times you'll be in a prayer meeting and say, Lord, bless all of these requests and all of the unspoken requests. And I guess that's all right, but learn to speak them. Cry aloud. Now, here comes the provision. Look at the next couple verses. I lie down and sleep. I awake because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Now, can you follow the progression of David's trial and follow the progression of this psalm? He begins by saying, God, I'm in the pits. I have enemies, my own son, who's dogging my steps. He wants to kill me. But Lord, I have poured out my prayer to you. You are my shield, my protector. And the result of that is what we just read. Rest. You can go to bed at night and sleep. You don't have to have knots in your stomach. You can wake up intact. Do you know what it's like when you go to bed and those thoughts like a record just keep playing over and over and over again and you can't get released from it? And you keep thinking about the thing. No rest. It's the pits. But I've learned to roll my burden over on you. I've learned to trust you. You're my shield. You've encouraged me. You've lifted up my head. I'm going to go to bed and get a good night's sleep. And I'm going to wake up intact. That's the result of a relationship with God where you don't claim exemption from trial, but deliverance in a trial. Picture for just a moment a knapsack, a day pack put around your back. Early in the morning at 6 o'clock, let's say 7 o'clock. Let's let, we'll let you sleep in today. 7 o'clock, you're out the door, you got the knapsack. And for every person or circumstance during that day, let's put a stone in that knapsack. And that'll be your anxiety level. So you drive to work, and three people cut you off. One person almost runs into you like somebody did to me last night. And so you've got three stones now in your knapsack. Get to work. 
You're a little bit frazzled. The boss says, you're five minutes late. I'm angry. It causes a care. It's a concern. Put it in your backpack. By the end of the day, if you're like an average person with an average day, having an average set of anxiety factors, you'll have a loaded knapsack. Multiply that by five days a week, and if you don't get rid of those stones, your back's going to break. That's anxiety. That's what it does to you. And that's why there's a wonderful promise, cast all of your cares on the Lord. He cares for you. As soon as you get a stone in your knapsack, at first it's all right, but by the end of the day, the end of the week, man, your back is killing you. So you need to learn to turn them over immediately so that the cares don't become burdens. Now, David's trial happened to be a burden without all of the little cares adding up to it. It was just like a huge boulder put in that knapsack. But he had learned as a pattern to turn things over to the Lord for so long, it became instinctive for him to do it. I found out something this afternoon that uh, I was thinking about. What causes us to be stressful? What causes us to have anxiety? And I found in doing a little bit of research, sociologists and psychologists have identified four, there are more, but the first four set of factors that cause stress and anxiety in our society is number one, they call it rush sickness. Trying to cram 30 hours worth of activity in a 24-hour day, which is indicative of our society, isn't it? Just cram, rush, hurry up. And secondly, straining. That's where a person, especially in the Western culture, feels like progress in his life isn't being made at a quick enough rate. And he's filled with stress and anxiety. The third is mobility. It's estimated that 75 million Americans will change homes within five years. You don't get a chance to put your roots down. Get settled. Build friendships. Have permanent relationships. And fourth, the threat of nuclear war hanging over our heads. The greatest thief is worry. It robs you of peace, doesn't it? You know what it's like to have that record playing over and over again at night in your little mind. You can't get rid of it. An old man was once asked, what in life robbed you of the most joy? He smiled and he said the things that never happened. It's estimated that 90% of your worst fears will never happen. The things that never happen. Worry's like a rocking chair. Oh, you'll get movement out of it, but you won't get anywhere in it. Just do a lot of moving, a lot of churning. But you won't get exercise from it. And you won't go any distance. You won't get anywhere with it. Now, I'd like you to turn to one final place. Because I want to answer a question. Where did David's confidence come from? Look back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Because this psalm is pretty confident. I just want to show you a principle. And we'll close here. First Samuel 17, it's the classic story. David fights Goliath. Everybody in Israel's chicken. They don't want to fight the guy. He's a giant. You know the story. David comes out, green, fresh from the shepherd's field, sees Goliath and says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine mouthing off to God? 
And people are amazed at this kid's courage. And Saul, in verse 33, replied, You're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy. And he's been fighting man from his youth. David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear come and carry off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both lion and bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go for it, man. Paraphrased. He said, go and the Lord be with you. Do it, David. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. There has been a pattern set up since David was knee-high to a grasshopper. He learned to turn things over to God. His shepherding. He probably woke up every day and said, God, be in charge of my shepherding skills. And when he saw predators like a lion, he turned it over to God and God delivered him. When he saw a bear, he turned it over to God. God delivered him. Because he was so used to doing that kind of stuff, so he saw a giant that was nine feet tall. Big deal. There's a big God who's taken care of me all my life. And I'm used to that. Because I'm used to that, I trust Him now. We need to set up as a pattern the trust of the Lord. Because otherwise, some of us, we're used to trusting ourselves and flipping out at every trial that comes our way. And you know what? Every trial you'll have the rest of your life, you'll flip out. You'll be filled with anxiety. You'll fret. You'll, you know, you'll flip a switch. Until you learn as a pattern. And if you're a new Christian, now's the time to start. Trust God and watch Him work. I dare you to just trust Him with it. I've told you the story about the guy who worried all the time. Worried, 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 worried his Friends used to make fun of me, worried so much. They poked and jabbed fun every time they saw him. One day he came into work whistling. Not a worry on his mind. They said, hey, what happened to you? He said, oh, I hired somebody to worry for me. It's great. He said, that's strange. How much are you paying him? He said, $65,000 a year. He said, you only make 30000 a year. How are you going to pay him? He said, I don't know. That's his worry. You are a servant of the living God. And you know what? I'll put it bluntly. Your problems are God's worry. Because God owns you. God bought you. Do you realize that? God paid blood to get you. Because of that, you belong to Him. You are not your own. And when you have a problem, it's His. Every epistle Paul wrote, he said, Paul, a bond slave of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that set up a figure in the minds of the people who heard that because a bond slave in those days was the property of his master and his master was totally responsible for him. He wasn't belittling himself. He was exalting himself. I'm a slave of God. My problems are his problems. So David said, I can sleep knowing that. On my way, um, on my travels to North Carolina and to California this last week, 
I was given a book by Franklin Graham that his mom, Mrs. Billy Graham, wrote. It's called um, Legacy of a Pack Rat. Fabulous book. Little stories about her life, her kids, her marriage, Billy's ministry, on and on. And uh, she has a little story about one of her sons named Ned. He says, I was tucking a small Ned in bed one night long ago. Something he had seen on television or had heard being discussed was bothering him. What if something bad happens to us? He asked. I reminded him that God is all-powerful and that nothing can touch a child of God without God's permission. Yeah, he countered. But what if God gives his permission? Well, in that case, I said, it is his will which is good and acceptable and perfect. Satisfied, he went to sleep. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the psalm we just read? Satisfied, he went to sleep. Lord, I have enemies all around, but I trust you. Good night. <laughs> You're my shield. I'm satisfied. I'm going to go to sleep. Would you join hands with one another? Chuck, would you come out? Chuck has a song for us. Just You can just stay seated. Well, yeah, okay, great. Stand up. <laughs> Whatever you're into. Let's pray for one another. Father, we thank you for this time of being enriched by your word and by the promises that we have heard Chuck remind us of in his songs. You are our Heavenly Father, a term that we don't want to take lightly. It means that we're your kids and you honor that relationship of provision and protection. And I pray that we would not view you as just our God, but as our dad, as our master. We would learn to make you our shield. We would let you come and encourage us and lift up our head. And we could go to bed without knots without anxiety. Help us, Lord, to learn the truth of Paul. Put there by your Holy Spirit when he said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends human understanding, will rule in your hearts. That's a promise that we grab a hold of tonight. In Jesus' name.